story goes, there's a rich man who once invited a lot of friends, honored guests for a feast. The rich man's own chair was richly decorated, placed at the end of a very long table. While he was away, each guest seated themselves according to their own esteem of their position inside of the master. When time came for all to be seated, the master approached his chair, picked it up, and moved it to the other end of the table. A bit of a different spin, but the same point that Proverbs makes. Proverbs 25, 6. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king. Do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Pride. It's hard to fight because it's hard to identify, at least to self-identify. It's been said that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except for the one who has it. For the last couple of weeks, we've been on Jesus' final journey toward Jerusalem, and we have narratives of certain events recorded to us by Mark. And today we're going to make nine observations as Christ moves towards Jerusalem. Let's read our text together. And I'm doing this new school on my iPhone because when I got here, I realized I'd left my Bible at home. Good thing we have these, is it not? Anyway, I digress. But the, the Holy Word says this. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to them, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jerusalem saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right, and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus said, or Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, Timaeus was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to gain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. First observation we're going to make is the course. They were on the road up to Jerusalem. Now as we have seen, when it says up to Jerusalem, that's because Jerusalem is high at least higher than most everything else, 2,500 feet above sea level. So from really any direction, Jerusalem is up. And this time, they're coming down from, uh, from the north. This is the first time in Mark that it's really specifically said that Jerusalem is the final destination. We have known he's been on his way. We've been looking at it for the last couple of Sundays. In chapter 9, we saw him up in Capernaum, which is up the Sea of Galilee at the top. Not marked, but it would be a little bit about the 11 o'clock position on the Lake of Galilee. Capernaum. Then he was beyond the Jordan in chapter 10, over here on the right of the River Jordan, coming down on the uh, right in Perea to avoid uh, Samaria. We would call that over yonder, I think. Down at the bottom, you see that uh, Jericho is just to the, to the left, to the west of the river. So you'd have to cross the river to go into Jericho, and then on the way to Jerusalem, they're depicted on the map. So we're going to see that today, he's going to be in, in Jericho on the way. And it's, the text says, Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fear, fearful. Now, Jesus here is clearly the leader, and he has a determination about him now. He is on a mission. He has always been on a mission since his birth, even before his birth. But the culmination of his earthly mission is just a few steps away, so to speak, a few days away. And we are on the precipice of the beginning of the Passion Week. The text says that those who were with him were amazed. Amazed at Jesus unwavering his determination to go to Jerusalem despite the hostility that was sure waiting him there. And those, they and those who were with him followed. Now besides the twelve, MacArthur notes that the Greek syntax makes it clear that there was a group distinct from the twelve traveling with them probably pilgrims en route 
to the Passover because most everyone is headed to the Passover at this time. Uh, Jerusalem is where the, the sacrifices were, were made. Uh, lots of Jews made the, made the trek. Lots of Romans made the trek. You'll recall that you know, the Jews and the Romans didn't necessarily get along so well. So whenever the Jews gathered, the Romans would come with their soldiers to keep the peace. Even Pilate's coming to town. Herod's coming to town. Everybody's headed to Jerusalem. And so we believe that this is probably a group of uh, worshipers, Jewish worshipers, traveling with Jesus. And they were afraid. I think because they realize something significant is about to happen and they don't understand it. So Jesus is basically pulling this crowd along as he leads. They are in his wake of his sheer resoluteness and they were a bit anxious. Anxious because Jerusalem is not only the site of the Passover celebration, but Jerusalem has been and is the epicenter of the opposition to Jesus that he has faced during his earthly ministry, we saw in chapter 3, verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. In chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. And he's headed now back to the headwaters of this opposition the text tells us that Jesus at this time took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Took the twelve aside. Out of this larger group, he takes the twelve aside to speak to them. It's purposeful. Imagine a kind of a football huddle. You kind of gather with your, your guys. And you're going to tell them. And the, the disciples would have to be mega distracted not to get what he's saying. So as the quarterback comes to the huddle and says something like this, this is the play, wide out, sweep right on two. And with Jesus, it's as he's saying, here is what's going down. That brings us to the coming crucifixion. He took the 12 aside saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. It's a cold play that they'd heard described before. They heard it, and we saw it in chapter 8, verse 31, which says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. But this, this first introduction of, of what was coming for Christ in chapter 8, there's not a lot of detail given. What we know is he'll be rejected, killed then rise recall this was the time that peter pulled him aside and said it's not going to happen 
you know, Peter missed the point. And we're going to see that it really doesn't get better over time with Peter or the other 12 missing the point. The second time this message was delivered was in chapter 9, verse 31. It says, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. We learn in this text that the evil includes being delivered over to death. Delivered up introduces, introduces that a betrayal is going to be involved. But in this third and final prediction, we get the most detail of his upcoming mistreatment. Each of these warnings has become progressively more grim. The third time includes the mocking, the spitting, the scourging, and then the death. And Jesus knows full well what awaits him in Jerusalem. Yet he moves with resolve toward it. One commentator says, there are two kinds of courage. There's the courage, which is the kind of instinctive reaction, reflexive action, the courage of the man confronted out of the blue with a crisis to which he instinctively reacts with gallantry, scarcely having time to think. Many a man had become a hero in the heat of the moment. There's the courage of the man who sees the grim thing approaching far ahead, who has plenty of time to turn back, who could, if he chose, evade the issue, and who yet goes on. We think of firefighters and policemen are the ones that are running to the places that everyone else is running from. Jesus is moving forward. Jesus yet goes on. This third prediction includes details such as being delivered to the chief priests, handed over to the Gentiles. We know and we will see in Mark 14 that there's going to be three Jewish trials. Before Annas, before Caiaphas, before the Sanhedrin. And the Jews, unable legally to accomplish and to carry out the death penalty that they'd put on Christ must bring him to the Gentiles, to the Romans. We're going to see three Roman trials. That's going to be chapter 15. Before Pilate, before Herod, and before Pilate again. And we'll be looking at these in March. But now we see that this statement of mocking, torture, and death seem to go right by James and John and the rest. Brings us to the incomprehension. In a companion text, Luke 18, 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. The whole matter of Christ's death and resurrection was not grasped by the twelve. 
Perhaps it was because they were captivated by their own thoughts of what a, a Messiah's rule on earth would, would be. And as we step back, because what the apostles didn't get, we don't necessarily get either. It's a hard thing to get. You know, last month at Christmas, a friend of mine sent me this text with a Christmas wish. He says, a hearty Merry Christmas to you and yours. And then he added, next year in the kingdom. I was buoyed by that. that was a, that's a grand thought, is it not? And it could possibly be. And the apostles, were, too, were expecting the Messiah to come and usher in the kingdom. MacArthur writes, the twelve knew, of course, that they were going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. What they did not yet fully grasp was that Jesus would be the Passover lamb, the ultimate and acceptable sacrifice that alone would satisfy God and bring to an end the symbolic sacrificial system. One reason that Jesus needed to explain those truths to them in advance is that the concept of a dying Messiah was completely foreign to what they'd been taught all their lives. The disciples were looking for the kingdom. We have the same desire. And even the desire to be rewarded in heaven. That's a noble one. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Some would say that it's selfish to desire a heavenly reward, as it's just selfish to seek an earthly reward. But as my mentor and friend Daryl Bennett used to say, if Christ is giving it, I want it. And Daryl now is experiencing that reward of which he spoke. But before the kingdom, the crown of thorns, the maker of nations submitting himself to the nation, the judge of the universe allowing himself to be the criminal in the greatest perversion of holy justice, the giver of life allowing his life to be taken. No, they did not understand Jesus' statement. But what they did understand was their own desires. Brings us to the craving. The preferment sought. First is the request. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Or in our vernacular, it'd be, what's on your minds? They said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right, one on your left, in your glory. Now that's quite a request. Particularly considering that they were part of such a small group. An intimate group. It's a saying, please move us all the way to the top. Just shy of you, Lord, 
in your kingdom. Now, Matthew tells us that it was their mother that made the first request to Jesus, followed by the reiteration of the request by the sons. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right, one on your left. That's pretty bold of this woman. Who exactly is she? Well, a bit of detective work and a tour through the, some commentaries. I think we, we have a pretty good guess. Let me guide you through it. Matthew 27, 56. At the cross, there's a woman described as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It says among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay, so we know at the cross, the mother of the sons of James and John, these of James and John were there. And then we look at Mark 15, 40, also at the cross, we see a group. But this particular person is now identified as Salome. And thus Salome would be understood to be the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Mark 15, 40. There are also some women looking at from, on from a distance. Among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother, James, the last, and Joseph, and Salome. Okay, so we know that their mother is named Salome. In John's account of the crucifixion event, in describing this, neither the mother of the sons of Zebedee nor Salome is mentioned by name. However, Jesus' mother and his mother's sister is, is there. This is John 9, 19-25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So here's the question. Was this yet another person? Or was it Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee? We're not certain. If Salome, though, this would show that she is Mary's sister. Salome then, the aunt of Jesus. And James and John, the cousins of Jesus. And if this is true, it adds additional insight into why Jesus at the cross would look down at John and say, Behold, your mother. He is actually handing his mother into the hands of his cousin and into his mother's nephew. Bring some color if this is indeed true. MacArthur says, and in context of our passage, if she was Jesus' aunt, the three of them undoubtedly hoped to capitalize on the family ties. So it, it adds a little bit of context to why this woman would be as bold as she was to approach her nephew. Say, hey, let's make this a cousin thing. But even if this family connection isn't there, you know, James and John had been invited, allowed to be at the transfiguration, which we saw in chapter 9. Had this puffed them up a bit? Emboldened them to seek the right? 
and the left. I don't know, but if you're like me, when you read Bible characters, particularly Jesus, the disciples, those that we, we love, it can be easy to give them a bit of a pass when they do things for their sins. Like because of who they are, their occasional stumbles, we think, oh, maybe not such a big deal. Here, James and John, you'd say, yeah, maybe a bit arrogant, but harmless, really? Not so. This was bad. This was really bad. MacArthur says this shockingly prideful request showed that for all the time they'd been with Jesus, the two had not learned humility even after observing Jesus, the flawless model of it. James and John also deliberately depreciated the other apostles as being beneath them and unworthy of the honor they deserved. James and John were manipulative, consumed by a strong self-promoting ambition, the expression of which revealed the ugly condition of their hearts. When we read in chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus said, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. That brings us to the rebuke. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. And speaking specifically to the sons, he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? In the Old Testament, the cup is often a symbol of divine wrath against sin. Consider the prophet Isaiah 51:17. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Or consider the prophet Jeremiah 25:15 For thus the Lord the God of Israel says to me take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them Then Jesus continues with his vivid word pictures in our text it says, Or are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Baptized with baptism. To understand this, we need to put aside our thought as the ordinance of baptism that we all enjoy watching, right? That is an event. But the word baptize 
simply means to immerse. And so think of that as you look at this text. We could say, are you able to be immersed with the immersion with which I am immersed? Because that's what it means, baptizo. You know, we, we're familiar with this context, this, the way this word is used. A grief-stricken person is said to be submerged in sorrow. The word is used for a ship that's been shipwrecked and submerged beneath the waters. So in context here, we ask immersed in what? Well, it's calamity, hardship, pain, death. Are you able? Verse 39, they said, we are able. There's little evidence that they truly grasp what he was saying when they said they had the ability to do this. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Jesus agrees that they will suffer. But he's not saying that they themselves are able. Remember at the arrest, they flee. Peter will deny Christ. Are they able? Not in their own bravado. Now Christ's death, this baptism, this cup, it's salvific. It, it provides the path to salvation for mankind. Now the others would indeed suffer, but it doesn't hold the same theological significance. Their deaths are not for salvation for anyone else but Christ is but they would suffer James would be put to death by Herod Agrippa see that in Acts 12 all the disciples sans one would be martyred John banished Christ says in verse 40 but to sit on my right and on my left that is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Well, why is this not Christ to give? Well, recall Christ has self-imposed limitations as he took on humanity during his earthly life. Some of his attributes veiled for the time. So we have this rebuke, shall we say an attitude adjustment? James and John went back to the other 12 and said, and the other 12 said to them, gosh guys, sorry that didn't work out. You two were clearly the ones among us who deserved to be placed on the right and left. Try again later. I tried to read that without sarcasm. It didn't come, <laughs> didn't work, did it? You get it, not at all. Yeah, thank you. No, that's not how it went. That brings us to the complaints. Verse 41, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. 
the ten are miffed. And in their miffdom, they seem to have lost the weight of what Christ is saying themselves. They are stuck at being annoyed with James and John who are trying to cut ahead of the line, ahead of their line. And a bit of a side note, and this is free, but one writer writes, the historicity of the account as a whole is beyond question. The early church would never have invented a story that is so discrediting to two of the most prominent apostles and indeed to all the twelve. I enjoy snippets from Scripture that not only make the point that they make, but just support the idea that this is God's Word, right? I mean, we know it's God's Word, but we're encouraged by these things. No group would put such a thing in it if they were trying to shore up their own religion and something they'd created themselves. But back to the point. The ten are, are angry. All of the twelve are competitive. And this competitiveness remained until the very end. Even till just a few days later at the serious and solemn occasion of the Last Supper. Luke 22, 24. At the Last Supper, there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. One commentator says, words were powerless to rid them of the idea of a Messiah of earthly power and glory. Only the cross could do that. And any good teaching moment that contains a rebuke contains a correction. Verse 42, calling them to himself, a rehuddle, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. MacArthur writes, the apostles were influenced by the prevailing leadership style of the world, which saw the rulers of the Gentiles lord their exalted positions over their subjects. Rulers were, and still are, ambitious, autocratic, self-promoting, confident, arrogant, prideful, dictatorial, and domineering. He goes on to say, the world has always been filled with ambitious, overconfident, competitive self-promoters who know no limits to their ambition. Many reach the heights of power. Driven by corrupt, proud hearts, they seek power at the expense of others. Ambition, overconfidence, and competitiveness mark the worldly pursuits of greatness by self-promotion. And we are no strangers to these power plays. We see it all the time, both in politics and in corporations. In other words, Jesus is saying that they are acting like the world with their ambition, their pride, 
their desire for power. Verse 43, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. No, it's, it's also true in the, in the church. There's no place in the church for overbearing authoritarian leaders. Mark 9, which we saw recently, sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and servant of all. Matthew 23, starting at verse 8. But do not call me rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And regarding church elders, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock among you, exercise an oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. World rulers, great men, lord it over, but should not be in kingdom work. No, ours should be made up of servant leaders. And to punctuate the point, that brings us to the criterion, the ultimate criterion. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Some have said that service and ransom don't really fit together, but death as a ransom is the ultimate example of service. Consider Isaiah 53, 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many 
and interceded for the transgressors. To give his life a ransom for many. That word for means in the place of. It's, it's like this exchange, you know. I got these tools for $45. I made an exchange. And Christ was to give his life a ransom in exchange for many. Someone said, well, to whom was this ransom paid? MacArthur says the ransom was not paid to Satan. As some erroneous theories of the atonement teach, Satan is presented in Scripture as a foe to be defeated, not a ruler to be placated. And though I love the writings of C.S. Lewis and I enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a smidge of bad theology in there, right? So don't get your theology from that. Get it from the Scripture. But you remember, Aslan gives up his life in exchange for the life of Edmund. But he gave his life to the white witch, right? No, not a, not a, a good analogy. MacArthur writes, the ransom, ransom price was paid by Christ to God to satisfy God's justice and holy wrath against sin. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This is a huge, huge, huge transition verse. It's really the, the key verse, if we can call there as a key verse. This gets my vote. In Mark. I'd even suggest you draw a line in your Bibles. If you want to do it at between 10 and 11, that's a good place, right? Because 1 through 10... Christ is sent to serve. And then in 11, we start the Passion Week. There below that line, starting 11, Christ is sent to save. And that's right here in this verse. He did not come to be served, but to serve, and that He did. And we've seen Him serve chapter after chapter after chapter. And then we're going to see him give his life a ransom for many as we look at the Passion Week, the next six chapters. 38% of the book is devoted to the Passion Week. Now Mark transitions here away from Christ's exchange with the disciples and we will see what we're going to call the cure. Verse 46, then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho. Now that's a quick pass through, is it not? Now the close connection between the arriving and the, de the departing suggests that this was really going to be a pass through. They had no intent to really stay. And the roads were such, you know, to get from town to town to town, you went through the town to town to town. Kind of reminds us in the old days, if you're old enough to really remember you know, when you went anywhere, you had to go through every downtown of the interstates, you know. Think Radiator Springs in the Cars movie, right? 
I digress. Now Jericho, about to point to the map that's not there. Jericho was located approximately 15 miles northeast from Jerusalem and about five miles west from the Jordan River. The flourishing New Testament city of Jericho was not far from the ruins of the Old Testament city destroyed during Israel's original conquest of the land. So think the Battle of Jericho, right? It's uh, Joshua, first battle in the course of the conquest of Canaan. You'll recall it fell after the Israelites marched around the city once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, blew the trumpet. All right. MacArthur writes that there were these two cities of Jericho in Jesus' day may explain why Matthew and Mark state that the healing took place while Jesus was leaving Jericho, that is, the ruins of the old city, while Luke states that it occurred while he was approaching Jericho, that would be the New Testament city. So in 46, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with the disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. By the road. A strategic location to find potential donors. Bartimaeus, or more likely those who could assist him, would be led to the roadside. And as a blind beggar, having nothing to offer but his sympathetic plight, his daily ability to get any amount of money of significance is the high flow of traffic. And as his plight would exhaust the locals, so to speak, fresh encounters with strangers was helpful. Thus the roadside location. Verse 47, when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Brings us to the convert. And Jesus said to him, Go. Your faith has made you well. The Legacy Standard Bible says, Go. Your faith has saved you. The Greek word is sozo. Same word used in Matthew when the angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph. Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will sozo, he will save his people from their sins. Bartimaeus had somehow come to understand who Jesus was. The Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David. And he called to Jesus, even though others tried to silence him. And he responded in faith 
when Jesus called him. He followed Jesus. And our text concludes with immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Bartimaeus, the new convert, began following Jesus. Began following him where? Right into the face of opposition. We'll pick up the story. We're going to see Jesus in the triumphal entry next week. We're there. For application, a couple I'd like to, to share with us and leave with us. Let's start with Bartimaeus. I think it's interesting that we know him by name. We know his father's name. Why? Why would Mark include the name of a beggar? I think Mark came to know Barnabas. I think there's a lot of future story, as opposed to backstory, of Bartimaeus in the early church. He came to follow. Followed Jesus into Jerusalem. And what did he see? Saw the arrest. Saw the crucifixion. Saw the resurrection, or at least was aware of it. Saw the church formed, the book of Acts. Was a member of the church, maybe along with his father. Is that why they know the name so well? I'm using a bit of a sanctified imagination here. But Bartimaeus was a follower of Jesus right on the doorstep of his going to the cross. So Bartimaeus is more than a healed beggar. He's a brother in Christ. God knows his name. We know his name. And one day those of us in Christ will meet him. Let's circle back to the disciples. We all have disciple disorder. Put me on the right. Put me on the left. The key verse, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, I've been faced with this verse for several weeks as I prepared to to teach. I haven't met this standard. I won't meet this standard to serve the, and to, to get rid of the de desire to be served, and, and neither will you. I'm thankful that Christ did meet this standard. And as with all of Christ's earthly life lived perfectly, we get credit for his life lived. Even how he served, we get credit. As if we had served perfectly. Now if you have failed to serve perfectly, rather sought to be served, 
The cross is a place to find forgiveness for this failing and for all failings. There is grace at the cross. And the grace to go forward in newness of resolve to serve. If Christ, the pinnacled one, humbled himself to do this, how much more we who haven't earned or deserved to be served by anyone. Remember, there is a Redeemer. And we've been invited to the Redeemer's table through faith. Through faith in Christ's life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. And by God's grace, whenever we have an opportunity to choose a seat at any table, let's choose humbly. Father, give us grace to do this. We confess we have not. And we praise you that we get credit for your life perfectly lived but only by our faith in your work indeed your work on the cross indeed the, you voluntarily given your life to be our substitute the only one that could and you did it freely willingly because of love and thank you father because of this great exchange father our sins on, on you, your righteousness placed on our account, Father, we can, in spite of our sin and shame and shortfallings, we can stand redeemed, cleansed, your sons and daughters. Father, may we not lose sight of this. Father, may this do nothing but help us relax in your perfect work and embolden us to go forth and and to serve we pray this in Christ's name amen